The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday, and today that means live Q&A. Finally, <laughs> live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and today is Friday, and we have the open phone lines. I finally was able to find a working internet connection. (laughs) You would not believe how tough it has been to actually uh, find and, and use an internet connection. But today, I've got it done. One of my personal pet peeves is people who complain and always make excuses for things. And so I try not to to, to always make excuses for things. And that's kind of how it feels when I do these Friday Q&A shows is I feel like I'm always making an excuse for the fact that it's been a long time since I've gotten one done. Uh, It's just been surprising. I I can find pretty reliably good, solid internet to be able to... uh, to be able to upload my shows because that doesn't have doesn't require a simultaneous open communication thread between me and the callers. But to actually record and get good audio quality for live Q&A has been challenging. But I've got new strategies, keep solving my problems, so let's see if these new strategies can pay off over the next few weeks. But today, we begin with Kevin in Colorado. Kevin, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Uh, yeah, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, so I have two questions about having to do with health share ministry um, instead of insurance. Um, first one is, is is a health share account compatible, or excuse me, is like an HSA, uh, HSA account compatible with a health share um, insurance program? Well, not insurance program. <laughs> it's a, such a funny and kind of a frustrating thing to, to constantly emphasize this is not health insurance, but, uh, you know, but it is functioning like health insurance. Uh, short answer, yeah. my understanding is no. Legally, technically, my understanding is no, probably not. Now, I think if I'm up to date enough on this, number one, this is something that the leaders of the health sharing organizations have been lobbying to get approved because there doesn't seem to be any reason why it shouldn't be approved, except for the fact that healthcare sharing ministries are not uh, are not um, insurance policies, and so therefore it doesn't technically work. So they've been trying to get the law changed. If my information is correct, I think they haven't gotten it done yet. Uh, I would also say that this this is probably one of those areas where it's worth testing. Um, you know, if you had administrative access to, so there, there are certain areas. Let me back up just a moment. If something is not approved, but it is not, um, but it is also there's reason why it should be approved. It's one of those things where you sometimes wonder if it's not worth just trying 
because you're right within the intent of the law. And if you can make it happen, uh, you know, you wonder if it's not worth going ahead and trying it. So if you can participate in an H and make your HSA contributions, it's not like you couldn't do that and then also say, but look, I have what is in many ways equivalent to a high deductible health insurance policy, so I should qualify. Now, you're asking me on the spur of the moment. I don't know that this has been tested in tax court, but sometimes on some of these things, it has to actually be tested on tax court. And I I wouldn't mind, um, you know, of course, I don't know who you are or where you're from, but I wouldn't mind hearing about your being the kind of person to actually test this because I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to participate in it. And if you're, if you went to turn, went to the to the uh, you know the ring with the IRS and they say no you can't make these HSA contributions because of your um, because of the fact that you have a healthcare sharing policy I wouldn't I don't think that's too big of a deal I would take it to tax court and and or if you have the stomach for that kind of thing and see if you can get a ruling one way or the other if you lose so what um, you, you know you, you don't lose anything maybe some penalties and fees which aren't going to be that big of a deal um, compared to what you would have lost otherwise so um, I guess the, the answer is no I don't think it's technically allowed but I'm not aware of a revenue ruling or a tax uh, you know court decision or something that we could look at and say it's absolutely forbidden and I and if my information is current uh, and the audience will correct me if I'm wrong uh, it's not current it, it's something that is kind of a gray area of the law make sense yeah that does and uh, if I have Joshua Sheets's uh, encouragement to uh, push the IRS I think I'm gonna go for it well <laughs> it's one of those things where here's here's how I look at it so IRS gets a lot of bad raps, right? And and I I'm I'm certainly prone to dumping on the IRS. And I know some revenue agents that listen to the show, and I've talked with them. I've had I actually had some clients that were formerly <laughs> I formerly had some clients that worked for the IRS, and they're often caught in a bad in a bad spot. So here's how I look at it: Number one, if you think you're right about something, you shouldn't be so cowed by government organizations like the IRS. And you shouldn't be so cowed as to uh, as to not you know to just do to do nothing. You're the one who's in, you're the citizen. You're a citizen of the United States of America. You have every bit of a right as anyone else to do what you think is right. Now, if the IRS has ruled on a decision, and that's where you're getting getting me on the off, off the fly, I haven't gone and searched. Maybe they have issued a revenue ruling on it or an advisory of some kind. If so, then you know they've they've issued something. But even still, that stuff has to be settled in court, and so you know ultimately can be tested in court. So most of the much of the law that we rely on to say yes, we can do this, relies on somebody having take having taken it to court. Let me give you just a, a simple example. In in you know in estate planning or tax planning, we'll often refer to something that that is and we we use a name because it's based upon something that's in court. So this morning I was working on a, a segment and I was talking about a crummy uh, trust with crummy provisions. Uh, they're called crummy provisions, and basically what that refers to is that refers to a case. Um, involving a man named Crummy who was trying to give a present interest contribution to a trust, and 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 it's that case that that now is standard fare for how estate planners regulate the the gift of a of a present interest to a trust versus a future interest of a trust. And basically, when you if you want to get a gift of a present interest, you have to allow the beneficiary of a trust a right of withdrawal, and that was laid out in the court case. So, without teaching on crummy provisions, the point is. 
how did that get created? How did that get established? Well, it got established through a, through a, a law, through a, a, a court case that then becomes, because of our common law system, then becomes part of how we operate. And so if you think that this follows the spirit of the law, but if you can't find a contrary you know, letter of the law ruling, then I think that you should go for it. You should try it. Now, let's understand what the risk is. The risk is that, number one, you might get audited. Well, there's a very low chance of getting audited, depending on on who you are and what the actual, where you live and what your risk profile is, et cetera. I have a much higher risk of getting audited than you do because of what I do and 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 how I do it. So most people have a very low risk of being audited. Now, if you do get audited, then you... That you may be audited or not audited for this. So if it come, this comes up in your audit, you may test it. And if the IRS says, no, we're not going to allow this, what's the worst that happens? You say, okay, and you amend the return and you file and you pay them the money that you took a deduction for and you reverse the, the, the withdrawal. Like it just doesn't, it's not that big of a deal. The only thing where you actually wind up risking jail time on, on some of this stuff is if you don't report income. So you should report all the income that you make that keeps you out of jail. And, and then the other stuff, go with your, make a, make a good faith attempt. Now research to see if there's a revenue ruling or something else. I'm not aware of it, but if I were in your shoes, if I had an HSA open, if I had a healthcare sharing account, if I could make those contributions, that's the kind of thing that I would do. Um, and I would be willing to fight for it. And I'd, I'd be happy to take it to tax court and let the judge rule on it. And if I lost, I would be ready and willing to pay. If I lost, I would be ready and willing to say, okay, I lost, but I think this should, this is, this is right. I don't think that's reckless. Okay. I think that's an well, appropriate way to handle it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll look more into it and I will, uh, I'll report back to you. With, with what I find or what I do. Yeah, please do. And I have a lot of smart accountants that listen. So if, I, if, I've, if I've missed something, let me know. I'm just aware that in the political season, I think a year ago, this was one of the things that many of the um, leaders of the healthcare sharing ministries were trying to get pushed forward. And I don't think they got it done. Uh, did you have a question number two? Yeah, one more question. Um, also relate, related to health sharing ministry is how do you, how do you deal with the the risk of a large medical expense that exceeds uh, the health share, what they will cover. So with the organization that my wife and I are, are with, I think it's about a quarter of a million that they'll cover. And after that, they, they're, they don't say they won't cover any, but they don't say they will. And so from a risk mitigation perspective, I'm just kind of wondering the best way to go about uh, just avoiding catastrophe if there was a, a really large medical emergency. So there are three, let me give you three things to consider. Number one, many of the healthcare sharing ministries offer different tiers of coverage. And so much like when you review insurance policies, as your wealth changes and as your situation changes, you should review the tier of coverage that you have. You should do the same thing with what tier of participation you have. And different organizations are different, but some of them have lower tiers. For example, the one you're with may be $250,000, but they might also offer an additional program, which is a higher program as well. Some of the healthcare sharing ministries will cover you up to a million dollars. We've, this is hard. This is a hard decision because many of us have gotten comfortable with the idea 
that a health insurance policy will cover an unlimited amount. And we think immediately of the worst case catastrophic, you know, stage four cancer with three years of, of intense medical bills. Now, that's possible, but it's not necessarily the most probable. In other areas of life, we also have significant risk that's not fully covered by our uh, by our insurance policies. But because we're not used to insurance coverage being unlimited, we don't think as much about it. So example, it, you have on your car insurance policy, you have limits that you've chosen with your insurance agent for your liability coverage and your property damage coverage. Those coverages are not unlimited. Now, you might set them low, or you might set them high, but they're not unlimited. You might also have a, an umbrella liability insurance policy that coordinates with those contracts, but that umbrella policy is not unlimited. So it is possible that you could get in a situation where you get drunk and you drive into a school bus and you kill 15 children you know, in the school bus and you lose 15 lawsuits, each of which costs you $15 million and you wind up bankrupt. <laughs> so like that, that's possible with your car insurance and your car insurance isn't going to cover it and your umbrella policy is going to run out and you're going to lose your lawsuits. So the same thing applies with health, that it is possible if you are choosing a, a healthcare sharing uh, uh, agreement that uh, only covers you for a certain amount, it, could, it is possible that you could have coverages in, in excess of that. So what do we do? Well, number one, you try to think about your situation and you try to do an honest assessment of risk. And we've lost the ability to do this very frequently. You can't protect against all risks all the time. You, you just can't do it. It's not possible. So you start by saying, what could I actually do? And you're better off. Most medical things are not going to be more than $250,000. They're not. Now, of course, there are plenty of horror stories where they're that could be more, but they're not going to be generally. Now, well, then what do you do if you do have more than that? You look into additional coverage with the, with the company, and then you think about what would actually happen if you were in the midst of it. Now, if you had one catastrophic point of coverage where you had one system where you had a terrible accident and $5 million of medical bills, well, you're just going to be dealing with that, which I'll get to in a moment. But what if it were more slow? Well, if I were facing some kind of ongoing disease, then I would just simply go on over to a, a commercial insurance policy if it looked like it was going to be on an ongoing basis. And with the fact that I've had coverage, which qualifies, and with the fact that com companies in health insurance coverage companies under the Affordable Care Act can't uh, deny you for pre-existing conditions anymore, then why shouldn't I just go and, and move on to a commercial insurance contract if I've got a long-term ailment? I don't see any reason not to do that. Um, the, the insurance companies, that was what they bargained. That was what they set up. So fine, I'll deal with that. And I'll just move over onto a commercial policy that does have an unlimited amount. Now, let's, let's say that I can't do something like that. And let's say I'm, I'm left owing a big bill. Well, the, the healthcare sharing organization will participate in a certain amount of my costs, but then if I run out of that, then I'll go and deal directly with the hospital and I'll, I'll, I'll try to settle that just like any other debt. So I'll try to work out a payment plan. I'll try to work out discounts as a cash customer. I'll work with, with them as much as I possibly can. And at the end of the day, I'm going to make sure that I always do good asset protection planning and good bankruptcy planning. So if I'm all of a sudden faced with $3 million of medical bills that I can't negotiate down, I can't set up on an affordable payment plan and aren't covered by the healthcare sharing ministry, well, 
That's what good asset protection planning is for, which is why I'm doing a whole series on asset protection planning. That's what good bankruptcy planning is for. So I declare bankruptcy. I, I uh, default on those medical bills and I start again. Uh, and that's how, it, how that, that's the ultimate solution. And that's what many people do. So that's, those are my answers to your questions. That's how you approach it. Or that's how I, I think you should approach it. Well, that's helpful. Yeah, that's, uh, I appreciate that. Just recognize this. It's not possible that any of us can perfectly ensure and protect against everything. And the medical stuff gets under our emotional skin. Now, I'm all for planning, but uh, this idea that, yeah, I don't need to repeat anything. You had a question number three, Kevin? Nope, that was it. Good. Well, thank you for calling in, and I hope that uh, it works out for you. I do love the healthcare sharing ministries, and um, I hope that uh, it continues to work out well for you uh, and your family. We go now to Tom in Salt Lake City. Tom, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir? Thanks for taking my call, Joshua. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I've got a friend um, whose last parent uh, just passed away recently, and she's... uh, asking a little bit about how um, I'd go about dealing with the inheritance. Um, The only thing she'll be inheriting is a duplex, which her mother lived in the lower portion of, and she's been living in the, excuse me, upper portion for many years. Um, She will need uh, some money for repairs that have been, uh, you know, from deferred maintenance on the property. There's a little bit of debt um, in her mother's estate that uh, the house will need to stand for. But um, this friend is also a single mother of four, a uh, fairly low-income job, uh, maybe $35,000 a year, uh, has very little cash on hand, about $55,000 in student loans, um, and another $30,000 in credit card debt. Um, so she's in a tough spot, and... Uh, with the, talking to the mortgage company, um, she they're they're really pushing her to do um, a, a, a cash out refi essentially on the property to clear some of her other debts. Um, my concern with that is that uh, as the mortgage currently stands, if she just um, is able to assume that payment's very very low, uh, two hundred and forty dollars a month. Um, if she refied how they want her to, it's going to push uh, the payment up to over a thousand dollars a month, which is you know, about half of her take-home pay. What's the current market value on the duplex? Uh, probably about three hundred thousand dollars. And how much debt does her mother's estate have? A couple thousand dollars. Um, the remaining balance on the mortgage is forty-eight thousand dollars. So there should be here. If we could settle this estate, she should clear about $250,000. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate. And about how much is the guess of, of how much money is required for the necessary repairs to get it in a saleable condition? Um, I haven't walked through uh, her mother's portion, um, but I would guess it's probably going to be between five dollars and $10,000. What's the... Uh, the student loan debt um, that she has, what is that from? I mean, obviously, it's from student loans, but I mean, did she finish a degree? She's only earning $35,000 a year. Doesn't seem like that's paid off for her. So tell me a little bit about the story of the student loan debt. Um, yeah, she went went to school, did an online program, and then came out of school um, in a poor economy, wasn't able to get hired, and ended up working a, a string of 
minimum wage job. Um, she's gone back and got some technical certificates and is working in a field um, completely unrelated to her degree field. Um, but the career prospects in her degree field um, wouldn't move the needle much on her salary. All the, the entry-level stuff is um, pretty low because it's a lot of public service. What's the credit card debt from? Um, overspending, general life. Uh, two of her children, one of her, well, one of her children is a, a single mom now, and the other's on uh, full disability through SSDI. So she's had that. Um, poor spending habits, not good with money in general. Um, so a lot of my concern is that if she did do a cash out refi on the house to um, clear a lot of these debts, it's going to take away the security by moving all of those onto all those unsecured debts onto a secured asset. Right, right. And then she loses the security of having that really low monthly mortgage. Right. How old is her youngest child? Nine. Is she no, was, sorry, sorry, 12. Okay, so 12. two younger, so 12, uh, what are the ages of all the children? Um, she's got two younger, two older. Um, the two younger are still in middle and high school, the two older are out of the house, but the one of the older ones is a single mother. She's helping out, and the other one is uh, a disabled, disabled child, but she helps right. out a lot. Is she receiving any alimony or child support payments? No. Got it. And isn't isn't likely to get any. Okay. <clears throat> has she made any improvements in her finances in the past, you know, recent history? Is she taking control of her budget, taking control of her expenditures, making any positive changes? Um, in that regard, maybe slightly, but not much. She has um, made some good positive improvement in her salary over the last couple of years. Um, has been listening to a little bit of advice there. Um, so that, that's positive, but this part, part of me has seen her track record and doesn't see it getting significantly better um, right. to be you know, your common listener. But right. at the same time, she's come to me in tears saying that her mom's passing and this current state of affairs has been a real wake-up call and she wants to to do better and set, set herself up financially in the future because she's done such a poor job with money. Right, right. Yeah, these are some of the toughest <laughs> circumstances to deal with because you're trying to discern somebody's behavior and behavior change, and you want to always believe the best and believe that people can change because time and time again, people have proven that they can change and that things can get better. But on the other hand, you need to have evidence of that. And and so figuring out how to, to, to create those two things is, is, is hard. So I would say first, given the fact that this is a new thing, she's, she's in a place where she wants to change, but she hasn't yet shown that she can change or that she's willing to change or she's willing to do the hard work. Then I would say probably the, best course of action is to believe the best, but be very slow to commit to any, any changes, try to be, you know, maximally defensive, but not make any big changes. So let's talk. The most obvious is the credit card debt. Um, Obviously, any person who is involved with a single mom of four children, um, one of her children 
being also a single mom, another child being disabled, low income, dealing with that, and without receiving child support and alimony, which is also reflective of, of you know, a lack of, of other forms of support from ex-spouses and fathers of children, obviously our hearts go out to that kind of person. And, and, and I think we would all be very charitable in terms of the creation of, of credit card debt and understanding of why that happens. The problem is, if that continues to happen, you know, everyone has kind of a point of of, of where they're comfortable. Some, if she's comfortable with thirty five, with with you said thirty five thousand dollars of credit card, thirty thousand dollars of credit card debt, right? Yeah, thirty thousand. So, if she's comfortable with thirty thousand dollars of credit card debt on a thirty five thousand dollar salary, that is an insane amount of credit card debt for that salary, and so. That's not just a little bit like that's a long track record of either a few huge decisions or a long track record of significant overspending. And so there's not going to be any easy way to solve that. And if she over the over time, if that just accumulated a little by little over time, then it's a real problem. Now, if we look back and we could do a, a forensic accounting analysis of, of where did that come from? Maybe her daughter, her, her disabled child was, had a, an especially difficult time and she couldn't work. And maybe it all came from a couple of months. Okay. Well, that's different than if it's just an ongoing period of time. But I think you really got to dig into that because that's a huge amount of credit card debt. And that's a major danger zone because people who are comfortable with $30,000 of credit card debt on a $35,000 salary are likely to jump right back into it. And, and I think we've all seen again and again and again where inheritance is and and money just gets squandered so quickly. And you fast forward three years and the money will be gone just as quickly as anything else. So I would try to work with her and try to say, what are some small steps we can make that that are going to show that you're paying attention and being careful and diligent and help her to get some wins, not big stuff, not you're going to go from $30,000 to $10,000 of credit card debt, but can you track your finances? Can we just keep track of what you're spending and then look at it? Um, can you cut one area of expenditures or can we uh, you know, track how you're doing with your income? But I would try to keep this money separate because she is certainly under the current profile, she is certainly heading for default to have... $85,000 of debt on a $30,000, $35,000 income is, is significant. So my thought is probably what would be the best, ultimately what would probably be the best would be to sell the house and then use the money to enhance her own situation. And it might be possible to do that in a way that, that allows her to continue to exercise her money muscles and clean up the mess while also uh, enjoying the benefit of the inheritance. So for example, do you think it's possible that the house could be sold and then she could find a reasonable place to live for about the amount of cash, say $250,000 and pay cash for an apartment or a condo or a house that would be appropriate for her and her family to live in? Um, yeah, that that could be um, a potential. Yeah, if she just cleared the estate um, and used the cash not toward um, towards her debt, but to get get some security back in her life. Because if she did something like that, then. And I'm not opposed to paying off the debt. I'm just opposed to paying off the debt unless she's committed that she's never going to go into debt again. Um, because this obviously her circumstances are understandable, but 
they're not going to help her to win. To have $55,000 of student loans for a worthless degree that you're making $35,000, she can make $35,000 without any degree ever, you know, at any number of jobs. And so this was a bad decision. And then to have the credit card debt on top of that is just probably a portion of unfortunate circumstances and bad decisions, which again, understandable, but she's got to be tougher and, and, and right the ship. So I don't, would it be possible in terms of with the needs of her daughter, other children, do you think could, could reasonable housing be obtained condo duplex, um, uh, single family house could reasonable housing be obtained in the neighborhood in your in your market for between one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand um, dollars? They, they'd have to move out of the area at that point. Um, this property is in a desirable location, but just due to the the age of the home and its current condition, um, the the normal properties in the area are probably between four and seven hundred thousand dollars so they would have to move uh move um you know half an hour hour away could the but, could she and her children move into one unit of the duplex and live there comfortably uh they have been they have been for years and years and years um oh, okay. so that was All right, one, i didn't understand one that. consideration yeah so they've been living in part of the duplex rent free for years and years and years um, so part of the, my general thought process was to see if she could find a way to settle the estate, keep the existing mortgage and rent one of the units and use that. I mean, that would be a 50%. Right. right. Um, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be a huge cash flow and it'd be a huge bump in her income to be able to start addressing her other debts and other previous things, um, or to keep the unit refi it, clear it, and then use the rental income from the other unit to, to help break the ship. Right. Uh, do you know anything about her credit score? It's bad. bad. I, I couldn't give you a number, but, but it's bad. Or bad. Good. I mean, the credit cards and the student, the credit cards and student loans have been in default for years. Ah, that, so is she paying any of those loans? Um, not the student loans. I'm sure she's paying some of the credit cards, but I don't know how much of them we haven't gotten in, in that much detail. Um, it's it's mostly just all in grief right now. Is she in the state of Utah? No. What what state is she in? Washington. Okay, Washington State. So, um, just a moment. Okay, with the magic of podcasting, I have pulled up the <laughs> Washington bankruptcy exemptions. Let's go through this. Now, I'm no expert in Washington law, but at least I can read the Washington bankruptcy exemption. So the first thing, the most important thing with a homestead, uh, real property or a mobile home up to $40,000 of equity is protected under Washington bankruptcy exemptions. And the reason that I'm doing this is when we get, if she's behind on credit cards and if she's not paying student loans, then we want to be cautious about all of a sudden having a bunch of unprotected money show up. Because at the very least, we want to settle this intelligently. At the very least, we want to um, uh, you, you want to go through and individually negotiate with each, with each of the creditors and try to get them to settle as inexpensively as possible and do this reasonably. And But we also want to understand how to, what the legal protection is here. So if she has been previously living rent-free and doesn't have, let's assume she doesn't have any money in a bank account or anything like that, then she was a relatively judgment-proof borrower. But now if all of a sudden 
she comes into uh, you know several hundred thousand dollars of property, then it, it, it it's questionable of that we have to think about how to protect her from all of a sudden you know facing six lawsuits and dealing with that. So first, is the has the estate been settled yet, or where is the estate the process? Where is it in the process of settlement? I would assume nothing's happened. I mean, her mother passed away days ago. Okay. So good. So you got a little bit of time to do this intelligently. So first, let's real quick look at the homestead exemption laws. So here's what's exempt in bankruptcy for Washington. $40,000 of real property or mobile home uh, ownership. Uh, Appliances, furniture, household goods, and home yard equipment up to $2,700 total. Books up to $1,500. Burial plot, clothing, no more than $1,000. Food and fuel for comfortable maintenance. Keepsakes and pictures. One motor vehicle for each individual up to $2,500 total. Um, Professionally prescribed health aids. Annuity contract proceeds to $250 per month. Disability proceeds, blah, blah, blah. Group life insurance proceeds, uh, blah, blah, blah. ERISA benefits, IRAs. Uh, looks like that's about it. Child support, farm trucks. Uh, okay, so that's, and then wages. Um, uh, so it looks like should be okay. Up to $2,000 of any personal property. So relatively low homestead exemption limits in the state of Washington, but worth paying attention to. Um, here's what I think might work out to be the best. First, I wouldn't hurry to settle the estate. What I would hurry to do is to start to help her to say, you've got an opportunity. This, she's got a couple of opportunities happening in her life. First, her younger children are getting older. At nine and 12, they can be increasingly autonomous, which frees her up to fix her career problems and move into a higher paying job. Um, She has probably diminished her career prospects because of caring for young children. Now that her children are getting older, she can substantially improve her earning um, her earning by and apply the degree and improve her career. Number two, um, she can start to show, put in place some good habits of financial management, like tracking how much she's spending, like being aware of how much money she has, um, just simply starting to manage certain things. Number three, she can get a good full picture of where things are. She can pull her credit reports, find out how much is owed, make a complete listing of the creditors, and start to challenge that process and try to get an idea of what is owed. She will need to become an expert or get counseling on how to deal with the creditors. You'll need to get an understanding of who owns the debt currently, make them prove that they have legal title to the debt. So when you start paying it, you don't double pay, and then start the process of figuring out what letters is she already receiving, receiving, what settlement offers is she getting from them as things are right now, and start to get an idea of how much debt we're talking about here. I would move slowly in settling the estate so that she doesn't immediately come into the money and then have to figure out what to do. So she doesn't immediately come into the asset where all of a sudden um, the, the, the creditors can force her, you know, can force the foreclosure on the sale of the house. So my guess is what would work out best is for her because the the house can't be protected by fully by homestead exemption laws, it probably will work out well for her to um, refinance the house. And if she can refinance the house and then use some of that refinance to settle the debts inexpensively and to pay off the things that are that are there, I think that would probably be a good move. Uh, that would probably be the best situation. I would try to refinance it just a little bit and get a little bit of money out of it um, so that she could uh, only wind up with 
not a bunch of money to blow on some kind of consumption thing, but that it could actually be set aside for her future. Um, I would think about selling half the duplex uh, if it, if it's divisible or already divided, or if not, then yes. I think if she's already living in one, the, the most sensible solution is just to keep it, rent out the other unit, and use it as rental income. That would help her to avoid having a lot of income or all of a sudden money that she would spend, and she can and she could continue to have a good place for her and her family to live. And that would probably be the direction I would go took us a long time to get there, but I think that's where I would move, but try to help her educate herself, you know, get her total money makeover and put her on Dave Ramsey's plan, something like that to really help her start to exercise and build those money muscles that haven't existed. Two follow-up questions. Um, would you, during the refi process and pulling some money out, would you pull out enough to settle out all the consumer debt or to try and take care of the student loans as well? Well, I think you'd have to look at them independently. So the student loans are probably unlikely to settle. So if she's paying them or, or can she could just pick them up and renegotiate them and just pick them up, then I wouldn't mind her still having those and then just, but, but getting them current. The credit cards, if she hasn't been paying the credit cards, then she could probably go through the settlement process with those. And so in such a process, she should have enough money to make them settlement offers. I would just try to do this very carefully so that they don't become aware of the money. And here's the problem. If her mom didn't have a trust, now it's going to be easily searchable that her estate, her mom's estate is going to be searchable. Everything's going to be a matter of, of public probate record. And that puts her into some legal jeopardy. But I would start to negotiate with the credit card companies and find out what they'll take as settlements on the debt and then just refi just a little bit and then use the, use the proceeds from the refi to pay those off. Um, I guess the key is I want to keep as much money invested for her benefit as possible, keep as little money out of her hands immediately until she's six months from now when she's shown, hey, I've gotten better at managing money. In that case, you know, let her have it all. You know, it doesn't matter. You can deal with that then. But she needs to have some time to show that she is learning how to manage money. And that's a skill that's not acquired overnight. Second follow-up on... Um the current mortgage, while the estate's still in probate and everything, she continues to just pay that low mortgage every month. Um, what What's the, and I guess this is all going to be specific, uh, it's just a, completely my first rodeo here. Um, what's a, a typical time frame for probate? I don't know. Um, you'll need to check the law in Washington and to see how this stuff is settled. Different states have, you know, some, some states have a simplified process, uh, especially for relatively insignificant estates. Some states are more complicated. Some states it costs more, some states it costs less. So she's just going to need, she's going to need to study um, the Washington you know, process and start to follow it. I would start with a good NOLO book, um, NOLO, the, the legal publishers. Um, they, they, uh, they, I'm sure have a good book on, on being the executor of a, of a, of an estate. So I would start with that and, and read that, uh, to get an idea of, uh, what, what she can do. And then I would, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. So I would stretch, if I were in her shoes, I would stretch it out as long as I could so that I could get everything else lined up with what's, what am I going to do when the money becomes legally mine? 
Uh, and I think that there are a number of ways, uh, just by following the dates, you should be able to stretch that out for a while. Any tactical, practical uh, you can think of to minimize the amount of time between uh, probate finishing and uh, actually being able to do the refi and get the cash to settle the offers, uh, the, the period in between where she'll have some cash and then all these outstanding uh, debts and potentially judgments um, is, is the most uh, nerve wracking part of the process that yeah. I can think of. Yeah. I don't, I don't know exactly um, how to do it because you've got, and this is not an easy situation that she's in, you know, the stuff that I'm talking about, where we're trying to make sure that we don't unnecessarily expose money to the claims of creditors. We're trying to make sure that we settle the debts at discounts if possible. You know, and there's a lot of moving parts here. So this is not finance 101. Uh, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say, starts by gathering information, see what offers she has, start to study the Washington law a little bit. I'm, I have no clue about the Washington bankruptcy exemptions. I mean, depending on how hardcore you want to be, I mean, there could be some things. Um, if, you know, looking at the Washington bankruptcy exemption limit, they, uh, you know, they ignore annuity proceeds. So it might be worth it to put money into an annuity that should be protected from her credit while also being useful to her in the future. Uh, you know, there are a number of different strategies and, and I just, I, I, don't, I couldn't go any further than that in a live format like this without all the details. Sure, sure. Um, would, what would be the, an appropriate um, local resource if we were going to get some professional advice? Look into a, start with maybe someone in the local uh, consumer credit counseling advisor. That would be good. Uh, I would talk with an attorney, and in her case, I would talk. I guess a bankruptcy attorney would be reasonable, and or would that be the best? I, I guess maybe a bankruptcy attorney would be a good place to start, just because the area we're dealing in here is is um, uh, largely kind of facing creditors and there's a little bit of protection stuff might also be worth talking to an estate attorney. Um, I mean, the situation is simple, but an hour or two of local advice from a Washington expert would be well worth the, you know, the few hundred bucks uh, for her, in my opinion, to, to show, you know, how things could be done. Um, that would be where I would start. If I were, if I were there, I would, I would start with speaking to a bankruptcy attorney um, to get an idea of, of how to protect her and, understand a little bit of the asset protection laws of Washington state, and then also possibly an estate attorney or a tax attorney who's, who would be familiar with the estate settlement process and would be able to work with her on understanding that. I don't, I, I doubt she needs to hire one. It, well, she might need to, but if you're working with her, it's probably not necessary to hire one for more than just a little bit of consultation, but that that's, that's where I would go for professional advice. Your input and guidance is Greatly appreciated. Hopefully it works out. Keep in touch and let me know. And thank you for, for working to uh, to help her. I appreciate that, that you're getting involved and, and working with her. Obviously, she's had many financial challenges and um, 
uh, and I, I hope that this can be a turning point in her life. A lot of times with single moms, when their children get older and they can make the turning point, she can have a very bright future. And I hope that uh, you can help her with that. So a couple of, of takeaways from some of these things for uh, the rest of us. Number one, if you have an estate, do estate planning. <laughs> Think in advance. Because with what I understand from what Tom's description here, uh, you know, this lady's mom is just leaving her the money just simply left her the estate and who knows if she was intestate or what, but she's just inheriting a piece of property. The problem with doing that is now you subject your piece of property to the claims of your beneficiary's creditors. And so that's a problem. So let's pretend that could be a problem on multiple levels. Let's, you know, this is, we're talking about a single mom. Let's say that she were in a fight with a, a divorce battle. Well, now all of a sudden, if the mom dies and passes the property along to her daughter, now that comes into the divorce proceeding. So now she might be fighting an ex-husband for this uh, money. Uh, it's also a problem, which is the obvious situation here with exposing the asset, the, the, the house, to the daughter's creditors. And so this could be very have been easily changed by the mother if she had sat down, transferred the asset into an estate that, sorry, in, <laughs> transferred the house into a trust, uh, even if it was a testamentary trust, that that the, the transfer happens on her on her death, and that testamentary trust could have spendthrift provision to protect it from the claims of her daughter's creditors. So then she could continue to have that asset, but that asset wouldn't be exposed to the claims of creditors. That would have been the best solution, and that would have been the easiest solution for her mom to do. Uh, and it would have cost, I don't know, a thousand, a thousand, a couple thousand bucks just to retain an attorney to write up a simple trust for that. Um, that would have been very simple and easy to do, but it would have been a lot easier than than what the daughter is going into right now. Uh, so that would be uh, just probably the biggest piece of advice for you and me is don't let parents die with property, leaving that property directly to their children, especially if their children have creditors. Um, that's a bad move. Also, then you have to think about what's the best disposition of the property and then try to keep it in the safest position, but I don't need to go on and on. Obviously, it's a tough situation. I guess the other obvious other example, don't go to school for stupid degrees that don't earn you money and wind up deeply in debt. This is stupid. Don't spend $55,000 plus on a degree that you wind up coming out the other end earning $35,000. You can earn $35,000 without even a high school diploma. So don't let people do stupid stuff like that because it just makes it more and more difficult uh, down the road. Enough yelling. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. If you remember, if you'd like to join a Friday Q&A show like this, best way to do it is to become a patron of the show. You can do that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Uh, and if you're interested in more information on, on making sure that you protect yourself and things like this, number one, keep listening to the asset protection series that we're doing. And then also uh, think about uh, taking a look at my credit card course radicalpersonalfinance.com slash credit card course. Be back with you very soon. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.